Hi, I'm Ellie Roark. I'm Wilson Gall. And you're listening to the Fledgling Theories Podcast, where once a month we bring you a discussion about a recent piece of bird research. So today we're talking about army ant following birds and how they share or steal information from each other from the different species. So the article is called Interspecific Information Use by Army Ant Following Birds. It's by Hope Batchelor. And as always, you can find that article on our website, fledglingtheories.podbean.com. And feel free to tweet at us, follow us on Twitter for more info at Fledgecast. So Wilson, what are army ants? <laughs> well, so this, is, uh, this study is in Ecuador, in the tropics. And army ants are just these specific ant species that form large colonies and they feed on invertebrates that are on the forest floor. And the way they get this stuff is by forming a big long line and then just kind of marching through the forest and sort of finding everything in the path of this colony. It's this big line of ants marches through the forest and they find all these invertebrates and eat them or, or collect them and take them back to feed to their larvae or something like that. Yeah, and they're not like digging for them. It's like they flush them out of the soil when they march past, basically. Yeah, just like you might march through a, a grassy field and sort of flush up birds as you go. These ants are marching across the forest floor, flushing up millipedes and centipedes and all kinds of invertebrates. Yeah, I think there's a lot of YouTube videos of them if you're interested. <laughs> and it turns out that there are birds that take advantage of this. So birds will follow these army ant swarms and the birds take advantage of the invertebrates that the army ants scare up. So the birds aren't eating the ants, they're eating everything that the ants expose. Um, so things that fly out of the way of the ants or things that the ants miss that are on the ground, these birds come in and sort of uh, eat all the leftovers, basically. And there are whole groups of birds that specialize on this. They, their whole livelihood is based on following these ant swarms and eating the invertebrates that they flush up. Right, they like wake up every day and go look for army ants. Right. Uh, but there's also non-specialists that will take advantage of these ant swarms if they can find them. So uh, these non-specialists get food from elsewhere as well. They're not like the obligate ant army followers. But if they come upon an ant swarm or they find uh, birds that are following an ant swarm, they'll also kind of hang out and, and eat there as well. And that's really what this study is about today. So um, these occasional ant followers use the calls of the specialist ant following birds to find the swarms of ants. Yeah, that's right. So these non-specialists don't go looking for ant swarms necessarily. Right. If one marches right through, they'll sort of take advantage of that. Or sometimes if they hear a bird nearby that they know is an ant following bird, they might use that as a cue that there's an ant swarm and go to feed at that ant swarm. Right, exactly. So uh, this is basically like eavesdropping on the ant following birds. You're, you're kind of hanging out in the forest and you hear that the ant following bird is calling in the distance and you think like, oh, I know what they're up to. I'm going to go snatch that food source. Yeah, and so Ellie, I mean, why, why not just what is the disadvantage to looking for an ant swarm yourself? You know, what do these specialist birds have to do that that makes it difficult? And why aren't all birds just out looking for an ant swarm there? So for these ant following birds that, that do it as their full-time living, uh, many of them, 
basically have a territory where they keep track of where the ants bed down in their territory, and then they go check on each ant bivouac every morning, basically, until they find one that's swarming that day. Yeah, so these ant colonies are in very dense groups, like a lot of ants, but those groups are sort of sparse in the forest. Right. There aren't a bunch of groups. So the ant birds keep track of where these dense colonies are. And the colonies, when they get into a swarm, that's when the birds can feed. Sometimes, though, the colonies are just camped out. They're not swarming. And then they're not of much use for the birds because they're not flushing up. Right, exactly. Things. But as you can imagine, it's it's energetically very costly to keep tabs on a bunch of different ant colonies. Yeah, potentially. At, it takes time, time and it takes energy sure. to fly around. Right, it takes time. So if you're a bird who's not an obligate, if you don't, uh, if your whole strategy isn't following ants, you probably spend your time more effectively looking for other food sources and then, you know, just glomming onto an ant swarm when you find one. Yeah. Opportunistically. And, and if, if these opportunistic birds are able to take advantage of the work done by the ant followers. Exactly. Then they've got a real advantage. They don't have to go look for the colonies themselves. They wait till an ant specialist bird finds the colony and then they just kind of follow the sounds to the colony. Right. So then that brings up a good question. Why, as an ant follower specialist, would you vocalize if somebody else is going to come use your vocalizations to track down your ant swarm and take advantage of your hard work? Yeah. So, I mean, I think the obvious answer to that is that you need to let your uh, close family know where the ant swarm is. You right. know, so these birds might be vocalizing to tell their mate or other members of their family group where the ant swarm is, that it's moving, things like that. So there's some incentive for them to vocalize to get the, the, the relatives who they want to come to the swarm there. Yeah. The unintended side effect is that you might, they might be attracting other species that would compete with them. Yeah, right, exactly. It's very much like a military spy operation type thing. You know, the, the, you have to put out intelligence in order to get the people that you want in the right spots, but that intelligence can be intercepted by someone else, basically. Yeah, and even though these, these ant swarms are big, it's not like they're flushing so many invertebrates that there's more than enough food to go around for everybody. There's a limited amount of food, and so if you get a bunch of birds coming to a swarm, there will be some competition for that food. Yeah, so talk to me about the competition for the food within the swarm. They have a pretty... Um, it seems like there's a, a pretty strict dominance structure in terms of the birds who attend the swarm, correct? Yeah, so I think, I mean, I don't know a ton about these ant birds, but from reading this article, the sense I get is that they don't defend territories in the same way that a lot of birds from temperate regions that I'm familiar with, North America and Europe, do. So in North America and Europe, a, a breeding bird might defend a territory of a few hundred square meters, like a very small territory, but there's enough food in that territory for it to sort of raise its young and get all its food. Um, but that's not the case with these very dense but patchy colonies of ants that move around. These ant birds would basically have to defend a very large territory in order for that territory to contain enough ant colonies and to sort of have all the ant colonies in their territory even when the colonies are moving. Right, totally. And that would be untenable for an individual bird, I would think. Yeah. Yeah. So it seems, based on this article, that what these birds do is they sort of have a, a territory that they patrol, but they don't defend that territory, or at least not very strictly, you know, not very aggressively. They might defend a very a much smaller territory around their nest aggressively, but mostly they just sort of have an area that they patrol. But 
they do need to exclude competitors to some extent. And sure. so probably some of that um, keeping the, the competitors out happens at the ant swarm while they're feeding rather than sort of defending a, a general territory all the time. Right, exactly. So you defend your particular swarm, not every swarm you might possibly encounter. Yeah, or even if you're not defending the swarm, you're at least there's probably at least competition for the food that these ants are flushing up. Sure. So there's, you know, who gets to eat the, the juiciest bugs first, basically, is the question. <laughs> there's some sort of a dominance hierarchy there. Um, and that is probably based on some combination of body size and aggressiveness. Yeah. And body size and aggressiveness can be correlated, and it would seem they might be in the kind of biggest bird in these Ecuadorian swarms that this study talks about. So, um, at least in this study's structure, they describe a, an ant swarm dominance hierarchy where the biggest bird is in charge. <laughs> So this dominance structure might matter for these non-specialist birds that will sort of feed at ant swarms opportunistically. And the reason is that if for the non-specialist birds, um, the signals that they get about a swarm being nearby by hearing other birds calling might have sort of different values depending on what bird is, what specialist bird is calling already at the colony. Sure. So in other words, if, if they hear a bird saying sort of like, here's an ant colony, if they know that that bird calling is very aggressive, then there might not be any point in going to check out that swarm because they would probably lose in any sort of competitions for the food there. Right. But if they hear the call of a small bird or, or one that they know they could beat, then it might be really beneficial to go there. They can sort of uh, take, take over the food that those ants are flushing up. Yeah, so it's worth noting that um, these ant swarms, or the the ant follower bird groups, are usually a mix of different species, and there's between one and ten birds, but usually around five birds yeah, these, per these swarm. Aren't, they're so not this huge is not a huge swarms. group. No. Yeah. So this study set out to test whether opportunistic ant following birds were more likely to respond to the calls of smaller ant following specialists and less likely to respond to the calls of larger ant-following specialists. Right, so, so they're testing whether the opportunistic birds are responding not only to calls that alert them to an ant swarm, but they're assessing to some extent whether those calls are delivered by a dominant, a very large dominant species or not. Exactly, and so they, they did this by setting up a playback experiment where they played the calls of a large dominant ant following bird, which was the reddish winged bear eye. And then they also played the calls of a, a smaller ant following bird, the white cheeked ant bird. And then the author counted how many birds showed up depending on which type of playback was used. With the assumption being that they expected more new birds to show up when they played the small birds song than when they played the big birds song. Right, exactly. So they also used a control species here. So th what they were interested in testing was the effect of the, the big dominant birds calls and songs and the small less dominant birds calls and songs. But they also used a control to make sure I mean, it's possible that maybe birds will just show up if you play any sound. Right, exactly. You know, maybe if I, if I play a Mozart sonata, a bunch of birds would show up. Yep. In which case, what you're, you're not really 
testing the effect you want to test there because you've sort of got something else going on. So Right. You need to find a way to eliminate the possibility that birds are just showing up because of any sound. Yeah. So for their control, they played vocalizations from a Peruvian warbling antbird. Now this bird is called a warbling antbird, but it doesn't follow ant swarms. So the idea is birds that are using the sounds of other species to, to find swarms wouldn't bother to follow the calls of this bird because this bird doesn't hang out at ant swarms. Right, They're, it's not even an opportunistic ant swarm follower. It just doesn't do no. the ant swarm thing. No, so there would be no reason for them to follow this call. So yep. it's a control um, because it's still a, a sound that they can play but it's not expected to cause the response they're looking for. So we've got the, some recordings here. First, this is one of the recordings they used in the study, and this is the white-cheeked antbird, which is the smaller and less dominant of their ant-following specialist birds. So this is one where they think a lot of other birds would show up when they hear this call, because this indicates that there's an ant swarm, but it's a, a small, non-dominant bird that they can probably displace. So here's the call of the white-cheeked antbird. Okay, that was the white-cheeked antbird, and then for comparison, Here's the sound of their control bird that they used, the Peruvian warbling ant bird. So that's the Peruvian warbling ant bird. So as a control, you know, some of the things they were looking for is they wanted a bird that's still in that region. They wanted something that's about the same volume, that's about the same length of song. You know, it's like one to two seconds. Yeah. So they, basically, they tried to choose a sound that kept almost everything the same. The only difference is that it's not a bird that's expected to be at ant swarms. And this is often the idea behind a control. You try to, to make sure that everything else that might be affecting things stays the same so that you can sort of be sure that if you're seeing a difference is because the one thing that's different, which is the piece that you're interested in, has changed. Here. Right. And I'll say that I'm not particularly familiar with the, the birds in that region, um, but I do uh, find their logic behind that choice of control species compelling. I think they did a good job picking a song that sounds relatively similar, um, but has that important behavioral difference associated with the bird because it's very difficult to to create controlled to create a controlled environment for an experiment in the real world yeah i think that this study actually is kind of nice uh in that in how it has chosen how they've chosen a question and how they've tested it based on a theory so there's a couple different ways you could do a study one thing is to sort of pick a species and sort of observe that species a lot and then try to figure out the explanation for what you've observed. Right. But that's not what this study did. This study really started with a theory about this dominance structure and how that dominance structure should affect the way that birds use the, the information broadcast by those species. Yep. 
And then they sort of set out to search for any species that could let them find differences in dominant structure and test it. So the white-cheeked ant bird, their less dominant one, and their, their red-eyed, what was it, red-cheeked bear eye. Um, hang on. And their reddish-winged bear eye. They're not interested in the species per se. They just looked for any species that have a difference in dominance, but both have an ant following behavior and vocalize a lot. Right, and likely in kind of the high diversity area that Ecuador is for birds, you could find two other species that fill those niches and do the study with those. It's not the species that are important here, it's the roles that they play. Yeah, they're really testing a, a theory about information use and dominance structures. And what they found is uh, pretty compelling evidence that their theory was correct, that um, those non-specialist birds, those opportunistic ant-following birds, are attracted to the ant swarm by non-dominant vocalizing ant specialists. Yeah, so specifically they, they did a playback um, 38 times with each of the different species. They only played back one species at a time, and then they sort of wait for a different day to test the next species. So they played back the white-cheeked ant bird calls on 38 separate occasions. They played the reddish-winged bear eye, which is the bigger dominant bird, on 38 separate occasions. And then they played that control on 38 occasions. Yep. And then when they counted the number of birds that, that sort of arrived in response to the calls, new species arrived on eight of those 38 occasions when they played the white-cheeked ant bird. Yep, but on only one of the 38 occasions that they played either the control or the uh, dominant bird. Yeah, so basically like about one in five times that they played the non-dominant ant-following species, something else showed up in response to that. Right. And when they played either the dominant or the control, the non-following, only one in 38 times. I mean, it's, it's quite a big difference. Things are showing up in response to this obligate ant-following but non-dominant small bird. Right. And the author does note here that birds are pretty um, widely dispersed in this region. They're not living in super dense habitat. So the, the low response rate to the recordings just in general is likely due to the fact that there aren't a ton of birds all living in close proximity who have the ability to respond to kind of limited numbers of these species. Yeah, I think they said that they did something like 114 playbacks in total and they actually got responses on around 10 of those. 10 of 10 them, 10 yeah. Or 12, <laughs> right. Which is kind of like... I wonder if that was a little frustrating in the field to be playing, you know, a hundred different playbacks and almost never, you know, only getting 10 responses 10 times when the thing that you're trying to study actually happened. Right. <laughs> yeah. And it does mean that the, the sample size is relatively small here. I mean, just not a ton of birds responded. So it does make you question a little bit, you know, how real the phenomenon is that we're seeing here. But the difference between eight responses for the non-dominant small bird at the swarm and one response for the control on the dominant bird is pretty compelling. I mean, it's statistically significant, but it's also relatively compelling, I think. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. When I sort of looked at this graph and the, the numbers of responses initially, I was like, oh man, this isn't a big enough sample size. You right. know, like I want to see more than more than 10 times where the thing happens before I start like coming to conclusions about it. Yeah, sure. But this is really where statistics sort of becomes very useful 
for scientists because it's actually very hard to sort of guess by your gut sense how many times you need something to happen before you're sure that it's actually a real thing you're seeing and not sort of a random variation. Right, like if it had been eight and four yeah. of dominant versus non or non-dominant versus dominant, that might have seemed significant to you as the observer, but who knows? <laughs> but yeah, who knows? People are just generally very bad at, at figuring out when something is a real pattern and when something is just random, but they see a pattern there anyway or not. And yeah. so, so yeah, I felt sort of like unconvinced when I looked at the raw numbers here, but this is what statistics are for. The whole job of statistics is to look at your patterns and look at your data and tell you whether those patterns are real patterns or whether they could have just come about by chance. Yeah. And in this case, the statistics are saying this really didn't, it's very unlikely that this came about by chance. It's probably the case that birds actually do respond more to this low dominant species. And so what the statistics are saying in theory is that if you were to do this study again, or tens of times or hundreds of times, or do a much bigger study, that you would continue to find this relationship where more birds show up to the less dominant species. That that, that is a real thing. And as your sample size grows, you're still gonna keep seeing that same pattern emerging. So in general, one thing that I think um, I was hung up on a little bit when I read this study is that I tend to um, be particularly interested in or excited about studies that have conservation implications, pretty explicit conservation implications. You know, we're in a time of many conservation crises. It feels like um, gathering data and, and um, answering questions that kind of help us address conservation questions are, is important. Um, but I'm not sure I see any, any real super direct applied conservation implications for this particular study question. However, it is a really cool, interesting study question. I mean, like, there's the fact that these ant-following birds have this really neat strategy and, are, and do this communication with each other is, is super interesting. What are your thoughts on this? <laughs> so, I guess I'd, I would like to push against the idea that that what would make this good is some sort of direct use. I think there's a lot that's interesting about this, but but I can actually uh, think of some fairly relevant conservation things that I'll just mention briefly, and then I want to go on and talk about why the study's <laughs> actually cool. Okay, I mean, the study's <laughs> but, cool. I'm not trying to deny the study's cool. So, conservation things. First of all, this shows that dominant structures, even in these small groups of five to 10 birds following in swarms, are very important. Um, this is of interest in conservation because it means that um, you can't just look at a species and its food or a species and its nest sites or something. You have to also consider the species and the other species it might be competing with. Mm, sure. And if you change any member of that group, it's going to change that dominant structure. And so, you know, so, so conserving the army ant swarms or whatever is not the only thing that matters if you're trying to conserve one of these bird species. There's all these other interactions with the other species that are actually very important. There's some similar studies that have been coming out of North America looking at dominant structures at bird feeders. Yeah. You know, just providing food isn't good for all the birds because right. some of them are going to be more dominant at the feeders than others. And actually, 
um, some of that can sort of take you by surprise. So there is a need to understand these dominant structures to know when they matter and when they don't. Uh, and so I think what studies like this that, that very clearly show dominant structures that are having a big effect on how species behave right. are relevant from a conservation perspective. Yeah, species interactions are always useful to understand because figuring out how what happens or what might happen if you remove a piece of the puzzle is an important conservation consideration. So aside from the dominance, I think there's also a, a, a narrower conservation use. Because these, op these opportunistic species are showing up, are sort of using the calls of this white-cheeked ant bird to guide them to army ant swarms. It means that to some extent that white-cheeked ant bird is important for providing a food resource basically for all these other species that sometimes show up. If you were to lose that white-cheeked ant bird, I think that you'd have to, to wonder, will all those other birds lose sort of a, a, an important piece of their diet? If they're mm. getting 10% of their food or something by showing up when they hear white-cheeked ant birds calling, and then you remove the white-cheeked ant birds, have you then sort of removed 10% of their, their diet or something? I mean, sure. I don't know that the 10% is right, but they're at least getting something out of that relationship. Yeah. Um, and so, so again, you have sort of a very specific potential conservation issue there. True. With the species dependencies. More generally. Now you can rail against me for my uh, <laughs> general conservation. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that this study is interesting for many reasons. So one of those things, one of those reasons is communication. So I think it's very interesting to study the way that species communicate with each other, the way, uh, or sort of the way that the creatures communicate within a species. I think bird song is, and bird vocalizations are one of the really interesting ways to study that because they are fairly, um, fairly easy to study creatures that are clearly communicating vocally. This obviously has parallels with humans. You know, this is, this is vocal communication over distances of a couple hundred meters. Like this is exactly what humans do. Right, exactly. And so having another system where you can study how this happens um, is very interesting, I think. And studying how that information can be used by, uh, by creatures that are not the target. So that's really what this is. These, ant, these specialist ant birds are trying to communicate with their friends and their family. And that information is basically being stolen by other bird species. And, and sometimes that could have a real negative consequence. If that information is heard by a much bigger species who then comes in and takes over the food, sure, that's sort of a pretty uh, serious cost. And so I think it's an interesting place to study sort of like, as these authors mentioned, there, there could be end up being an evolutionary arms race. Where yeah, totally. Like human espionage, you know, where now the species that used to, you know, the white-cheeked ant bird might develop some kind of encryption mechanism or whatever to like try to keep their calls from being recognized. Yeah, would they would they sing quieter or something yeah, so the birds sure. can't hear it, or or would they, you know, would their call sort of become more and more like that dominant bird's call? Yeah, so that things, right. I mean, there's all sorts of things that you might expect to see, um, that are just sort of interesting from an evolutionary perspective and from an information sharing perspective. Lastly, I think that uh, there has. Ecolo a lot of ecology has been very limited up till now in studying responses between a species and its environment. 
and a lot of the work that I do in species distribution modeling is basically based on looking at the temperature and the precipitation and the altitude and all these sort of parts of the environment and using that to figure out uh, where you'll find a species or what species need. Right. I think what is missing or has been missing historically in a lot of ecology is the possibility that the other species that that things are interacting with are as important as the environment in many cases. Mm, right, like other species are not typically included as like an environmental parameter in ecological modeling. Right. Yeah. But it turns out species modify their behavior based on nothing but the other species. Right. So that's what's happening here. Like presumably all these opportunistic birds are hearing these calls and they're thinking, hey, there's an ant swarm there. Yeah. But their decision about whether to go to that ant swarm is based on the what birds are already there. Yeah, solely on an interaction with another species, not something else that they're observing about their environment. I think there's also yeah. a really interesting bird cognitive thing to study here, an evolutionary thing. Are those opportunistic birds, is, is this avoidance of the dominant birds learned or innate? So I guess what I'm asking is if, if you're a species that's one of these opportunistic followers, uh, you hear a, a dominant ant bird calling, and you think, what's this noise? And you like fly over there and you find an ant swarm. You're like, hey, great food. But then you get you get sort of pecked at and driven out by this dominant species. Do yeah. you learn to avoid that dominant species call? And then totally. do you avoid or do you learn to, to show up when it's a, a non-dominant species? Or is this some is this not really learned at an individual level, but more learned on an evolutionary time scale? I mean, it seems yeah, I was thinking about the exact same question. It seems like it might be the evolutionary timescale to me, just because it seems like this effect size wouldn't necessarily be so strong if it was being learned at an individual scale. Uh, I don't know. So there's there's a couple of well-known examples. Um, for instance, in Great Britain, I think it was blue tits. It might have been other some bird species in, in Great Britain where some of the birds learned to peck through the caps of milk bottles that were left on doorsteps to get the milk, right? <laughs> and this behavior spread through the entire population in basically one or two years. So these birds are able to learn behaviors by watching other birds do the behavior. Interesting. And the whole population learned this behavior very rapidly. Um, and so you can have very large effects that are learned. You, you know, it doesn't have sure. to be evolutionary for, for a big thing. And in general, many birds are very good learners. They're sort of very behaviorally adaptive. Um, but not always. Right, but you think, I mean, like, how many negative experiences of the swarm would it take for you to learn the lesson, I guess is my question, you know? Yeah, like, or, or is it even from negative experiences, or do they just learn that their parents follow some calls and not others? Sure, but... That if, could still be learned rather than innate, but they yeah. might not even have to have the negative experience. I mean, I... Right, many generations down, but presumably, like, some birds had the initial experiences of the dominance hierarchy... Sure. ...that led them to develop the behavior to begin with. Anyway, just be an interesting question. It'd be easy enough to test. You'd just sort of get some some eggs from some of these opportunistic things, sort of rear, rear those chicks in isolation, and then expose them to the calls of these two different dominance birds. If they follow the non-dominant call and don't follow the dominant call, having never been in that environment before, then you could say, well, this is obviously innate. They just sort of have some sort of innate attraction to that non-dominant call. But, yeah. but if they're sort of equal, then you could hypothesize that it's a learned behavior. Yeah, I don't know. That's interesting.
Well, once again, if you want to read this study for yourself or check out any of the graphs or anything, you can uh, check it out on our website, fledglingtheories.podbean.com. The study, once again, is called Interspecific Information Use by Army Ant Following Birds, and it is by Hope J. Batchelor. It was published in the AUK in 2017. The DOI is 10.1642 slash AUK-16-93.1. The funding for my PhD position comes from a project funded by Science Foundation Ireland. I'm at University College Dublin in the Ecological Modeling Group of John Yearsley. If you want to find out more about our research in the Ecological Modeling Group, you can go to www.ucd.ie backslash ecomodel.